0: Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Durrigan Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. As I engage with more and more edu celebrities, what becomes apparent to me is that at the heart of it, they're still just teachers. However, what can separate them from the rest of us can be their amazing ability to communicate messages in a way that is informative, non-judgmental, and at just the right level of evidence mixed with practicality. This is something that I believe today's guest, Tom Sherrington, has mastered. For the better part of the last decade, he has been pumping out more hits than Ed Sheeran, from his popular blog that has recently featured the Five Ways series, to Rosenshine's Principles in Action, to the current project, Teaching Walkthroughs. In this in-depth conversation, we chat about how Tom randomly found some Bill Rogers videos that were transformational for him, how he worked out the need to deliver precise, professional learning for teachers, and the common challenges that schools face. We also go through how schools are using teaching walkthroughs effectively. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Knowledge for Teachers podcast with Tom Sherrington. It's a real privilege to be speaking to today's guest, Tom Sherrington. Tom, most of my listeners would be familiar with what you currently do, but um, are you able to just give us a bit of an overview of your educational journey leading up to now?
1: Well, like right from the beginning.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, maybe maybe cut out some of those finer details, but, you know, some of the highlights and and maybe some of the challenges even. Yeah, well, I, I
1: suppose, I mean, I've been involved in teaching for a long, long time. Back, I started my teacher training in 1986 teaching and I, I spent a few years teaching physics and maths um and then you know i took a break and went traveling for a while including coming to australia as well but then i decided, then i i sort of committed to teaching and and spent a long time in big comprehensive schools in london and and then i went abroad teaching international school which was really interesting. And at that point, I sort of went into school leadership. And then I came back to the UK and was the head of a couple of schools there. And all, altogether, that was 30 years teaching in, you know, about six quite different schools, which was I found really interesting. And then six years ago, I kind of went solo. I decided that I was going to just focus on uh teacher development and consulting schools about how to do that. And that, that sort of took off. Along the way, wrote a couple of books which helped me kind of get people to kind of ask me to come and work with them. So now I just spend all of my time either in a school visiting lessons and talking to teachers and school leaders about how to how to improve teaching and or doing whole training of sessions sort of conference style training or whatever, and also running the the walkthroughs, which is a kind of commercial enterprise now sort of with a, a, a membership scheme where schools subscribe and then we, we offer all sorts of materials and stuff to them so that's become a thing which has taken off in the last three years yeah so along the way lots of ups and downs but you know it's, I've, I've been working with teachers and teaching for a long long time now it feels
0: yeah awesome and, and I know one thing that we have in common is we both come from families of educators and you've actually met my mum yeah. how did you how did you find it growing up with a mother as a teacher? Oh, it's
1: funny. I mean, she was, she, my main memory of my mum being a teacher was that she had really, really hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not really hated it, but she, she found it hard. I mean, I think, I think she found it frustrating in terms of behavior management. And she, she always had great anecdotes about certain students. I I, I always remember her talking about an exam where, and, you know, she picked up an exam paper. She taught French, and she picked up this kid's exam paper, and on one side it said "PTO, please turn over." On the other side it said "answers on the other side." <laughs> <laughs> so, sort of, that was like she. So, it's just full of stories like that, you know, about students and and the the teachers. But she, uh, you know, I think it, she found it difficult. And when I told her I was going to do teacher training, she she cried. <laughs> she wasn't she wasn't happy. She was she was like. She was frustrated that she was thinking, "Why, why are you wasting a degree in physics to go and teach?" Kind of thing. That was her. That was her sense of it at the time. Yeah, I don't think she, she doesn't think that now. So it, my sense of it was like teaching is something which you avoid and try to do something else. But I wouldn't say that to my own children now. If if either one of my two children said they wanted to do go into teaching, I'd be really happy about it. You know. So it's, I think things have changed.
0: And do do you think you know as you developed your own kind of knowledge of effective teaching um do you think her own opinion of it changed as well as you kind her of discussed opinion. things yeah as you discussed things with her
1: yeah in fact definitely i mean when i wrote my book the learning rainforest which is a book i wrote that when i first left teaching i had quite a lot of time on my hands i thought i'd write this book and i asked my mom to proofread it and uh, she read it covered it you know line by line and she she was really you know good about say she she said she found it really interesting kind of hearing about it and and so that was quite good it was, it was quite a good way for her to kind of engage with what I'd written it was her to read literally spotting all the errors she was she spotted way more errors than the editors of the publisher did yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was like she was hit teacher lens on exactly yeah she did a much more thorough job than they had so um that, that was quite good <laughs> for lots of reasons Yeah, I I mean, I I think we talk about it. I mean, you know, she's been aware of me talking about teaching for years now, going through from one school to another and the the stories that you come up with and the challenges of it and also that sense that it's doing a good thing. You know, I I feel like and also this intellectually challenging. And when you become a school leader, there's a. I think she changed her mind quite a lot then, you know, this is the sort of kudos and saying I'm a head teacher, which I think you can't argue with that in terms of like being proud of your child. (laughs) so Once I moved beyond being a kind of main scale teacher and she realized that there was a career in it, she could understand why I was interested in it. But um, yeah, that's, that's been, that's going back a long time now. I mean, she's been more than happy about that, me doing that for years.
0: Yeah. You know, I've, I've had a, you know, similar experience of, uh, with my mum as a teacher and you know following my journey and, and it was kind of funny you know you, you you go from being uh you know more like an apprentice to as you're developing your own career um you're more like a, a peer and you kind of you know the way I've experienced it with my mum is is uh, just being able to throw around ideas and um you know compare stories in a way
1: yeah well, I loved I got a real buzz out of meeting your mum and you together in the stri- the event I was in, in, in Sydney and there she was and there she sort of the fact that you were both attending the event as professionals um, was, was pretty fantastic. I love that. Yeah. I've met various, various other people who, um, I, for example, um, a person who's a bit of a legend to me is a, a woman called Ros Hudson, who she was the head teacher when I first became a deputy head. It was a, it was a brand new school. We opened it in London. And, in 1999, as a you know, first first intake, and we set up the school together. She was the head and I was the deputy, head. and I, I absolutely love working with her. She's a total inspiration to me. But her son now works at that school, <laughs> so it's sort of you know, like there's a kind of family thing. And in her family, there were everyone's a teacher. Her husband's a teacher. Two sons are teachers. Yeah, I, I think there's something really powerful about that. You know, you just it becomes the kind of what's normal. um Yeah, so. You my wife's a teacher, deputy head of a big school. If if our kids become teachers, it almost feels like they're fighting to avoid it because it feels so inevitable. <laughs> the gravity <laughs> might draw them to it. But, yeah. I
0: don't, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Um, shifting the mood a little bit, but, like, one of the things I've um, really found a lot as I've engaged with more people uh, who were involved in, uh, you know, learning about the science of learning, I found how – like almost every single person that I've spoken to has had various challenges along the way and and different feelings of isolation. And I kind of, I find it really interesting, um, you know, learning about those sorts of challenges that people have faced, you know, and as you, as you talk to, uh, you know, even people like yourself, I'm sure that you'll probably experience some of those same challenges. You know, would you be able to reflect on some of them and and kind of, you know, what you've been able to learn from it? Do you mean in terms of, Teaching, being in the classroom. Teaching, uh, you know, school leader, I guess just, you know, throughout your career, you know, what's what's the moment that you can kind of think of that uh, really shaped, you know, who you are now?
1: There's so many things. I mean, I feel like the place I probably learned the most from, it was a school called Holland Park School, where I was, I was there from 1992 to 99. And it was a it's a, you know, a school where... You know, the whole time I was there, um, we never, we never reached that. We had this sort of benchmark of trying to get 40% of the students to get five good GCSEs. That was the kind of measure of the, you know, in the system. And that means like over 60% of the students are not getting that. It's a a tough kind of environment. And we didn't really have a behavior management system of any, of any substance. There was no one you could call to your lesson if you were in trouble. And you had to just sort of sink or swim. So you had to kind of like really work the room and c- cut your teeth on working out how to ma- mo- mobilise some quite challenged students to learn. And without a lot of training <laughs> or guidance, it was, it was pretty bizarre the way that teachers just arrived and just like, off you go. And um, I went through a, a whole process there of being really struggling with the first two years or so it was just... Absolutely awful. I was I was a terrible kind of shouting (laughs) teacher. I remember chasing the kid down the corridor because he ran away from me and thinking someone said to me, What are you doing? I said, Well, he's run away from me, he's he's not gonna get away with it. he was saying, Let it go, let it go. You know, you know his name, just pick it up later. And I was like, Oh, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) So like wound up by it. So for me, like there was an emotional, emotional process to go through to kind of grow up a bit and um, and towards the end of that time, I, 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 I and it sounds really cheesy, but it, a kind of bit of a life changing thing for me was, in teaching terms, was finding Bill Rogers videos, on a shelf in 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 a in an office, and I was thinking, well, what are these here for? What are these? I looked at yeah. them. I'd yeah. We've never been shown yeah. them. I just sort of stumbled on them. Someone had them on a the shelf. So I thought this looks interesting. Wow. And I took them. Home and I played them all. I like, oh my god, this stuff is gold. Yeah. I thought, you know i'm going to try this stuff out and quite a bit late in the day to be honest i started learning how to do things like um partial partial agreement and saying things like okay maybe you weren't talking but let's just now focus on the work shall we and that's like, <laughs> that sort of thing or mm-hmm. or you know giving a pause that that kind of pause okay yeah. looking and listening thanks michael yeah. david Joanna, thank you. It's like saying thank you all the time, and I realised I started to say thank you all the time because that's what he does. So yeah. he was that was that was huge. So for me, like the biggest transition for me was sort of, and it still, it it not didn't happen instantly. Was kind of learning to manage my emotions in the face of year nine, <laughs> who were who are sort of shredding me on a fairly you know regular basis. That, you know, I empathise with anyone who has those issues. And it's one of the things that influences me still now when I hear or discuss behaviour management with people who ha- who are a bit on the soft and woolly side and think it's all about relationships. When actually, when you're sort of 26, faced with a, quite a difficult group of teenagers, you're feeling, well, I, I can't... F- how do I form a relationship? I just need a system which says... Stop talking when I'm talking. And if you do, there's going to be a consequence, you know, that kind of thing. So like, and a consequence which isn't major, but just enough to stop the students thinking like, I need to respect this teacher because they're working hard. And I, 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 anyway, so I, I could go on more about the behaviour side of it. The other side of that, the other big challenge, I think, and the other big revelation, and it's happened around about the same time, which was just coincidental, was the work of Dylan William and Paul Black, and inside the black box. Yeah. Which came into into schools. And pre- preceding that, actually, there was a fantastic program, which was also from King's College in London called CASE, and it, which is cognitive acceleration and through science education. And there's a maths equivalent called CAME. And we, we were introduced to that in our school as in the science department. And and it was really mind blowing. It was so exciting to have this program, which devised by some researchers, which helped you think really hard about how you get children thinking during a sequence of lessons. And that was we we talked about that for years after that. The case a lot, a lot of science teachers who used case I think still talk about it like it was a a, a groundbreaking initiative, which made you think really hard about. What the questions you ask and the things you get students to think about and how you get them to sort of understand the, you know, things. And I can still remember the experiments that in the, in the case program now really, really vividly because they were so clever, so well-designed and they had scripts for things that you could say to push the dialogue on. And it started influencing all your other lessons. Yeah. So that was, Those two things were, were
0: really big. Yeah. You know, Hopefully no one threw those Bill Rogers videos away. they would probably worth a bit now. Um, I, think I, had, I think I had to give them back. I felt like, I don't know.
1: and they were VHS. So even now, like even if I had them, no one would be able to play them because no one would have <laughs> yeah. to
0: Yeah. Um, and what about that? So Case, and what was the maths one? Well, Cain.
1: So the same idea, Cain. cognitive acceleration through maths education,
0: I think it meant. Yeah. I mean, are they still, if, yeah, I was going to ask, are they still around now? Or? You just, I think you can still access them. Yeah. I don't know I don't
1: I don't know if they you know the I think there are various com- competing claims about what they did so the idea that you would accelerate students in some fundamental way like permanently increase their kind of intellectual ability through the program and I think that's that idea of acceleration I think was uh, possibly I don't know how how secure that is but the idea that it's a good way to induct students into into understanding um the nature of science was definitely very strong. So, for example, one of, one of the experiments was um, you had these pipe pipes of different um, materials, but you had like glass pipe, metal pipe, plastic pipe, thick and thin pipes, and different length pipes, like short and long pipes, and you just had to blow on them and and see what note it made. And the students had to design an experiment to work out what made a difference to the sound. Was it the material? Was it the length? Was it the width? And they had to understand, they had to sort of design a test which would would do that from all these variables. So you have to sort of do this thing of making the testing, it's fair testing, you know. So you had to sort of make sure you're only changing one variable between two pipes. And that was just but you'd have students struggling with that. Like, it was so interesting. So watching them sort of trying to pick two pipes to compare. Yeah. And they they pick a sort of thin glass long one and compare <laughs> a short wide metal one and, and not understand why that wasn't a fair test because you changed everything. <laughs> and that's other thing. So sort of getting them to kind of realise why that wasn't a good choice. Yeah. So the, to me, I mean, it wasn't. And there were, very, there were loads of other experiments which are... Um, there was one about putting Vaseline on both sides of the leaves, you know, so, or one side or no side. And to say which, which side of the leaf does it, does it affects the, the water leaving, you know, evaporating from the leaf more. And, and that type of thing. It's like, a, the, there were loads of, there were loads of really good, like quite pre- precise experiments, which made the students think about variables. That was the main thing you were, they were learning
0: to control yeah, variables. Yeah. Yeah, so so that kind of helped you with understanding how to sequence concepts in small steps. In a yeah, way. yeah, and yeah. and um, the purpose of
1: practical work being more you know about setting up things to think about quite you know, in a quite focused way. It's really clever stuff, and and it's a, it's one of the things which is,
0: you know, when I go into schools now, where
1: Instead, and there isn't anything else they know instead. It's like that's just been that's been forgotten from their teacher education, which I find kind of sad.
0: Yeah. Um, so do you do you would you say like this time when you know you engaged with Bill Rogers, uh, you know, inside the black box and then the case and the cane programs, was this the time when you kind of really went down that rabbit hole looking at the research, or what would you say? Not really, because
1: at that time I didn't really even know there was more. So I mean I don't teachers now I mean I I know that around the world especially in the UK you know where we've got teacher strikes and stuff I mean it's it's not right to say there's never been a better time to be a teacher generally because I feel like pain conditions and stuff are in a a pretty desperate stage state in some senses but in terms of access access to information and the culture the professional culture amongst teachers from a kind of learning about teaching perspective i do think it's the best time there's ever been and i feel like teachers now kind of perhaps not realize how in the late 90s how isolated research was from practice yeah so even though um i'd engage with dylan william at that point if i wanted to go and research find out any more research everything was behind paywalls or in journals there wasn't the internet was still primitive and yeah you couldn't just search this stuff. So I don't think that really took off for me. Uh, and there was still, remember, then in the early 2000s, we had all this stuff of absolute bunk. I mean, we had like three or four years of total chaotic nonsense stuff, <laughs> like visual, auditory, kinesthetic, brain gym. And we went, I mean, I, we we had some of those atrocious professional development infecting our system in the early 2000s period, um, which, you know, w- w- was got was got in the way. But then, round about 2005, formative assessment, Dylan William did another big push on formative assessment. Yeah. And because I knew about him already and so did everyone else, you know, he, he's like he cut through. And there was a, quite a big initiative around assessment for learning as uh, and so on. And, I, and actually, I interviewed him... F- a couple of weeks ago and he really made a nice clear distinction about the distant difference between assessment for learning formative assessment responsive teaching and so on and kind of how those ideas connect but it, that was that was kind of groundbreaking but even then i didn't really think what's the evidence for all of this it was just dylan william is saying it so you sort of feel like he has kudos when we got to the sort of 2010-12 people started realising this the cognitive science movement. So Dan Willingham and wyden students like school. Mm-hmm. And of course, Sweller uh, uh, and Kirchner and Clark, their paper, mm-hmm. Rosenstein's Principles of Instruction, all those things. So 2012 onwards, there was like, so the last 10 years has been like an explosion of research engagement, which before that was kind of, absent you know it was more through sort of government policy and things like that which was often horribly misguided and i feel like teacher autonomy with the birth of twitter and and social media generally has allowed us to bypass government kind of policy and go straight to the researchers so the last 10 years have been like a golden period of a teacher researcher engagement which i think is, is, is brilliant i mean but it's it's hard to sort of communicate to people exactly how absent that was before
0: that really yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, as, as someone that does enjoy, you know, engaging with the, the evidence, um, I think it really is accessible. And, uh, you know, there's there's great things about social media in terms of being able to engage with other educators who are also, you know, testing things out. Because, you know, one of the tricky things can be is uh, it doesn't always transfer directly to the classroom, what you're reading. But um, that's one thing I really admire about you is your ability to kind of, um, you know, deliver your messages in a way which is really practical for teachers uh you know have you have you been like purposeful with that and intentional yeah definitely
1: I I feel like I mean there are different schools of thought about this but my feeling is that um it really helps to have techniques which you can give a name to and I mean I'm not known this. obviously like um, you can see I mean if you behind me here i've got my my teach like a champion collection and yeah douglamov Doug and other people have been good at sort of putting their name to a technique and i and i've i've sort of learned by doing that you know if you if you go and this is an emerging thing for me say over the last six years so six years ago i've gone into school to do a training session about questioning techniques and i've had a heading let's look at questioning techniques and i said you know there's some of the ideas that you might have are like Doug LaMolfe calls this one cold calling. And so we talk about cold calling, but because none of the people I was talking to had read the book. Uh, so I was, I'm sort of telling them about it. I'd find that when I go back to that place a few weeks later or months later, that everyone in the room had sort of made up their own version of what it was, even though we sort of yes. talked about. It. So when they're saying, am I doing it or not? We're, we're actually not talking about the same thing. So I felt like we need to be even more precise about this. So the more, precise you can be about what it is what it isn't it's not because you're trying to form rules i think sometimes people get a bit um sidetracked by this that if you're if you define a technique you're not saying you must do it exactly like this or else you're doing it wrong kind of thing you're saying mm-hmm. when well, i'm talking about it this is what i mean so we can talk about the same thing even if someone says okay that's cool that's what you mean then um I I kind of like that but I also adapt it in this way at least you know what you're saying to each other so I find that really precisely defined techniques helps you think about whether you're doing it well or not and how to change it and how to adapt it for your own context so that they're not rigid but they're just precise in their definition and the more precise you are but of course and as you know as everyone says and in this world in this field that you don't you have to do both you have to explain the rationale for a technique and talk about why it would work and the core idea behind it almost as much as the specific steps of doing it but you need to do both you you one without the other is uh you know less much less effective so if you only talk to people about ideas and in, theor- in you know theoretically and you don't give examples or act it out and model it teachers don't tend to they go and interpret it in multiple ways, sometimes quite ineffectively. And if you only tell people exactly what to do and don't explore the rationale for it and why it's a good idea, then again, teachers feel like, why are you making me do this thing? And really they should be able to engineer the, the link the two up and make sense of it and interpret that once when they're in the heat of a classroom, you know. So I think making it really practical and really specific I learned. I learned this though was starting when I started blogging. So when I first started writing blogs, not, not having any idea whether anyone would be any would be interested, I wrote this blog <laughs> about marking. It was about my sort of fourth blog I ever wrote. It was about marking. I thought <laughs> I'll go really boring and just and there's loads of people read it. I thought <laughs> that's just mad, you know. People actually in the in the teaching world actually want to discuss the things they do every day or every week, even mm. if they're really fast, things like marking. So let's talk about marking. Let's talk about setting homework. Let's talk about holding, set, getting a class to pay attention at the start of a lesson. You know, it's like, these are the things that we have to do. So why shouldn't we discuss them? They don't have to be kind of groovy, highbrow, intellectual things. They can just be really functional things that that actually make or break your day as a teacher (laughs) and they are worth discussing
0: yeah you know i'll just go back on a couple of things i really like about what you said then about you know being precise when you're delivering that professional learning or or cpd um you know one of the things i've found a lot is that because the people who are delivering that um that session can be suffering from the curse of knowledge they will assume that the people they're talking to know more about what they're saying than, than a lot of the times that they do, you know, and so if we're not really particular with, uh, you know, giving examples or, you know, and even non-examples and and like you said, you know, going through those steps, um, talking about things that might be uh, the the active ingredients, you know, in in that technique, uh, that's when we can start to see those misconceptions and it's, um yeah, I personally found it really interesting just kind of watching how uh, things can evolve after you've delivered um, PL sessions.
1: Yeah, so it's so interesting. In fact, I've seen them, I think lots of other people do CPD and and online sessions and stuff. And the thing I'm, I'm sort of almost begging for them to do more of is just to give an example. So, you know, you can sit through a whole PowerPoint of someone talking about metacognition and yeah. the education yeah. and endowment report says this, and they suggest this, and teachers should think about this, this, and this, or... They'll say retrieval practice all works because of schema building and da, 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 And you think, yeah, show me what you mean in terms yeah. of an actual thing someone might learn. Because yeah. until you start yeah. saying, so for example, if you teach history and you're teaching them about, I don't know, the industrial revolution or, you know, the origin of, you know, I don't know anything, the uh, world war two, you know, let's look at that. You know, what, what are the key facts? How do we turn that into a, a, a a thing or an essay. Let's look at this essay. Imagine what's the metacognitive process behind writing this essay? Let's have a look. How would you model this? How would you scaffold that? And once you're talking about actual things, it the general general ideas start making sense. But it's very common for teachers doing training to just quote, you know, quote one, quote two, slip it from a research paper three, anything, just make it real, you know, put it in the context of a subject for a teaching some actual students. And then it sort of comes alive. And that, that, that would be my main request for people delivering training to do way more examples of actual mm. things.
0: Yeah, I agree. And uh, I'll give you an example of, of uh, when I've gone through this, this sort of process and it, it came up on uh, Twitter recently was about uh, retrieval practice. And so I remember I delivered some EP on retrieval practice and I thought it was really great. Uh, only to to find out a couple of weeks later when we'd done a bit of a check-in that there had been this misconception that retrieval practice was just reviews. So the teacher, uh, you know, talking to the class at the start about what they had previously done without actually getting the students to do any of the heavy lifting. So that the students weren't thinking at all. They weren't, you know, pulling any information out of their own head. It was just the teacher talking to them about what they'd done previously. Uh, You know, so straight away I realised but oh, I need to actually give some more examples as to what that might look like in their classroom.
1: Well, that's that is quite a bad interpretation of that idea, isn't it? Yeah, and we're gonna do a, re- a review by me telling you what we did last time. Yeah, that's that is that's a non definition. But I, I think getting retrieval practice right. In fact, um, later this week, I'm going to research Ed in Wales. Um, research Ed Cymru which is a good good event um, in Cardiff and my talk is going to be getting retrieval practice right or something like that so I'm going to be thinking hard about and and I feel like there are a number of things I could say about that I I feel like getting retrieval practice right means you have to there are a number of things that have to be there for that to be working one of them is the obvious thing every student needs to be involved and that sounds such an obvious thing to say but it's hilarious to me how often you can see a teacher think they're doing quizzing or, or retrieval practice and they're actually asking only a few students the questions because the others have decided not to answer them or they're just going around the room one by one or whatever and you think gosh just those kids over there can you not see they are not even able to check if they know it because they're hearing the answers before they've had a chance to think or whatever so that yep. type of thing yep. another one is to mix up the kind of it's a different skill to say, okay, you know, well, let, let, let me ask you, say, so which, which uh, football team does Marcus Rashford play for? You know, that's a quiz, you know, you could say, Oh, I did. So you're prompting me to explore that sort of prompted quizzing. And that's a totally different type of question to saying name all the players, you know, who play for Manchester United. Yeah. Then I have to yeah. generate all their names and, that sort of so those are totally different. Or or to write a hundred words um, describing <laughs> the last Man United game you watched, or something. So I have to actually remember it and talk about it. So it's like there's so many different ways to construct the knowledge again to see if you know it. And I think it's that pulling it around and mixing it up, which is so important. If you only ever get asked the which which team does Man United to, does Marcus Rashford play for type question in a quiz. Mm-hmm. You learn the knowledge in that very rigid way, and you don't learn to generate his name even. You just know that when I hear it, I can place it, and it's that type of thing. You can you see quizzing, which is so sort of re- repeated in its form. You think, come on, you've mm. got to mix this up. And of course, the students need to have encoded that name for you. Can't remember who Matt, who, who Marcus Rashford is, unless you've ever sort of thought about him and said his name out loud or and talked about him a bit, and to secure that knowledge in a lesson so that later you're just retrieving that knowledge that you already have. And that's, that's a, a, an absolutely massive issue is teachers thinking the job is done when um, you've labeled the diagram and stuck it in your book. But the students, as they close the book, have forgotten it all already and <laughs> there's no, there's no hope for them. So anyway, I'm not going to go into about that a lot longer, but it, I do find it a fascinating area. You really have to explore how it works, how it doesn't work,
0: how to do it well. Yeah, you know, I, I can see that football is clearly on your mind, Tom. It's the League Cup final today, I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, what What you're kind of also alluding to as well is that sometimes um, we overemphasise the need for routines. You know, sometimes we, we we have these routines. All right, so this is what we're going to do at the start of every lesson. We're going to do retrieval practice. And so we want to create some sort of retrieval practice routine. But then if it gets too routine... Then all of a sudden the students get too used to it, and then they're not thinking as hard as they probably should be or could be.
1: Yeah, and you get a bit of what I call sort of going through the motions, yeah. of, of the routine without, and people forget why they're doing it. You know, so yeah, and that 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 transfers into things like you know, copying, learning objectives. You know, so mm-hmm. the original original idea is exploring learning attentions is an important part of learning. You know, so what are we trying to do here? What 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 are we focusing on? Let's let's activate our thinking around this. So what's the question we're trying to ask? Where are we heading? We're trying to understand this. Okay, that's good. So we're trying to explore and clarify our learning intentions. Does it help to write that down? Well, it might do. Um, But if it does, then it's important to write down a thing you understand. So the learning objective is, okay, so we've clarified that. So what we're trying to work out is how does the respiratory system work? Okay, so that's the learning objective how does the respiratory system work in a frog or something? I don't know. Boomf. And that now is a record of a, of a thing I understand as my learning goal. But that, again, then gets turned into, okay, guys, the, the learning objectives on the board and the kids look at it and copy it out. Or it's on Yeah. They haven't discussed it. They don't know what it means. It's just a thing to write. And, and know, I sit next to children Every week, or I could ask them, "What's the learning objective?" or "What have you written?" And they just—they don't really know. Like, it's amazing how how easy it is to write a whole sentence that you you literally don't understand when you're 12. You know, oh, I don't know. It's that they point at it and go, "It's that." You know, what does it say? I don't know. I haven't really read it, but you wrote it, yeah. Like, and I wrote it like a robot. I copied it off the board, <laughs> and that, that's what's happened. Mm. So the, the 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 good idea of establishing the learning goals has morphed into a routine which almost bypasses any thinking and teacher thinks they've done what they're supposed to. The kids think they've done what they're supposed to, but it sort of hasn't made any difference. Mm. And and I sometimes the the simple organic thing of, okay, guys, you know, pens down, let's just have a chat. What are we, what are we going to do today is this and just talk about it. It's probably much more useful than getting kids to write stuff down. So people it's morphed into a kind of really a behavior control thing of, get them doing something while I get the lesson started
0: mm-hmm.
1: but they might as well just write the numbers one to 20 in the back of the book or something <laughs> really... okay everyone just for control reasons I'd like you to write the numbers one to 20 in the back of your book I mean you might as well do that for the meaning yeah. it has
0: um, now look I do really want to talk to you about teaching walkthroughs you know when when you first published it uh, I thought it was absolutely brilliant you know I I, I got it for myself and. Um, I was using it, yeah, uh, probably more, at, initially I was using it more for one-on-one situations, you know, using that third point of conversation that you've got in there. Um, but for those that aren't familiar with it, can you just give a bit of an overview of, of what it is and why you and Oliver Caviglioli decided to put it together?
1: Well, it started off with Oliver having the idea that um, there's a lot of techniques out there, which are really good ideas. and. yeah. Uh, yeah we should that somebody i.e. him and and, and me should curate <laughs> them into should curate them into some kind of central resource so that teachers didn't have to constantly find the techniques so we thought we would make a kind of uh so a few ideas came together into one place one of them was this curation idea of having like a central resource which you could always have across the whole school where the techniques with names could be just referred to in one place so that you could discuss them. Then how to present the techniques? Well, visually, so a visual guide. So you've got a visual reference. Um, And so we decided that for consistency and, you know, logical reasons, it would be good to codify all those techniques into five steps. So each step is descri- described in, each technique is described in five steps. Sometimes the steps are sequential. So you do one, two, three, four, five. Sometimes they're sort of, five different ways that you can do the technique so there's slightly different variations within it so walkthroughs is basically books with not numerous techniques described in five steps each illustrated with a sort of you know to try to imagine a teacher doing them and then we we, we describe the kind of categories so they're, they're broken down to six categories one of them is curriculum design One of them is behavior, behavior relationships. Then we've got ones on explaining and modeling, questioning and feedback, retrieval uh, and practice. And the last one is what we call mode B teaching, which is stuff like, which is not teacher-led instruction. So it's stuff like uh, collaborative learning, projects, or a C, debating, that type of stuff. So those six categories allow us to sort of put all the things in. So we, we started off making the books, and we, we realised that we, went, we we sat down in my kitchen and wrote started writing a list of things that we would include. And we only got to about six we were thinking, well wow, that's already too many, like for a book. Let's yeah. just stop there and let's say we'll do another volume. Should we do it in three volumes? We decided straight away, let's, let's just do one a year just to pace it out a bit. So we decided to break it down. But now really, now we finished them. Really, the three volumes are just three parts of one whole thing. And... Then we, the, la- the next thing we did, was we thought, well, if teachers are going if, to, if schools are going to use these books, they're also going to want slides and videos and work things to help you do the training. So why don't we make that? So we thought, yeah, that'd be so easy to do. We'll just make some PowerPoint slides from the images or record some videos explaining the techniques and we'll make it, we'll put it on a website and then people can join as members to access that. So that's become a, I think our first member joined in May, 2020. Mm hmm. And now we've got just a cut- just nearly we're really close to three thousand schools have signed up well, to join us, well. it, so it's just really blown our minds, so we can't believe really so many schools have joined um yeah. so the whole the whole idea took off hugely, and seventy schools in fact i think it's seventy two as of yesterday are in Australia, which we're very excited about so it's it's happened you know it's across different some lots of international schools have picked it up, but um you know seventy schools in, in Australia have, have joined so that's it's become this whole thing and now I've just totally focused on it because it's become a sort of it's preoccupying takes up all our time but yeah it's exciting so the, the basic idea is that you use the resources to deliver training and to inform coaching conversations and your whole professional development process in your school Yeah. Uh, so that teachers have a good shared understanding of the techniques and The steps and the techniques, like I said earlier, kind of help you as a prompt for the reflection and precision in your practice to see if you're sort of, uh, you know, doing those things as well as you could be. And, you know, we find that schools are sort of saying like they, now they have them, they sort of can't really remember how they did without them because because what, what else do you talk about if you're not talking about techniques? You're talking about ideas you hope teachers share because often they don't share them as as, as clearly as as um as everyone was, was thinking they were they were just sort of guessing that we all understand this thing. Yeah, so it's anyway, I won't, I don't want to big it up relentlessly but it's it has been a, f- a fairly phenomenal kind of uh couple of years of of the of the enthusiasm for it we it's certainly exceeded our expectations.
0: Yeah, so in terms of you know schools actually using it how how are you seeing them using it effectively?
1: Well, it, but what they use they use the, they use it as a a reference point for for all the things that they do, which which constitute professional development. So, like for example, right from the beginning, framing a teaching and learning policy. So, what are the, what are the things as a school we think really matter in? in in teaching so that we all we all can sort of focus on some areas and deliver that solve the problems that we have in our in our team or in our subject or in our school so the walkthroughs give you a language for saying you know we're going to talk about questioning techniques or retrieval practice techniques or expectations and 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 so on and the the walkthroughs language helps people frame those those ideas there's a then there's a training aspect. So a lot of the resources are for, let, let's talk about how to do such and such a technique or how to deal mm-hmm. with this problem. If this is our problem, how do we solve it? Well, look, look at these techniques. So the materials are very strongly sort of geared towards supporting the training. And then the third aspect is the kind of ongoing process, the coaching between all the meetings. Like when, I, when I've observed a lesson or done a learning walk, watching lots of lessons, how do I construct a feedback conversation? Well, the walkthroughs gives you a kind of a language and a framework for saying, well, what's happening? And is this happening? Is it, could it be improved? And, and, yeah. and so, we, so that's that's basically how schools are using it as the kind of the, the, the plate, the thing they're using as a framework, as a sort of reference for all the conversations they're having. And the difference it makes is that it means that every, everyone in the conversation is looking at the same resource. So they're having a focused conversation with less of a kind of assumptions being made about what we're, what it is we're discussing.
0: Yeah. And do you want to uh, touch on, you know, the clusters and, and how they can kind of help schools in, in terms of, um, you know, what they might be focusing on?
1: Yeah. So the, the cluster, it's funny, like a lot of our ideas, we didn't have them at the beginning, and they emerged. So what yeah. Oliver noticed every time I do, every time I did a webinar, say talking about behavior management or, or, or questioning, I'd be saying, yeah so you know this technique goes well with this technique and then actually this third technique also comes into play so once you have using these three techniques together you're really kind of making it work and he was saying so that thing of combining the technique seems to be a really important idea doesn't it like we don't actually do a technique we actually often using multiple interwoven and so he came up with the idea of, he, he spent a while thinking about what do we call it you know and he came yeah. up with the word cluster so he thought that was quite good it's a cluster yeah. cluster of techniques so and we use this these are icons these hexagons on our on our website so that you can sort of link them up and they, they, they tessellate nicely hexagons tessellate beautifully so you can link you know lots of these ideas visually on a page so you can connect them visually and play around with them and go okay that's those are the techniques i'm working on but also conceptually then makes you put things in a sequence or in a hierarchy or so the clustering helps you think, like, when I'm doing questioning, I'm sort of one minute I'm doing cold call, the then I'm, I'm doing a think-pair-share. The student's not sure we use that. we go to the no opt-out thing or say it again better, that, or we do probing questions and all these sort of things uh, adding to your sense, your knowledge of the depth of the technique. And that's a cluster of techniques in questioning. So that's where that came from. Yeah, and schools have found it, I mean, there's a bit of sort of, people like to visualize so there's a there's a power in visualizing the techniques using the tool but really it's about getting you to understand how things relate so that hopefully when you're in a lesson you're not just thinking am i doing this technique you're thinking how well am i combining so and the analogies are you know there's so many like for example a tennis player you know we don't just do backhands (laughs) you know we don't just do backhands and then say i've done backhand now i'm doing forehand oh why are we doing more training on backhand we did that last year you know i'm working on my backhand and now i'm really focusing on my forehand but i'm still weaving it and so it's how i link the two together or you know what i mean it's like
0: Mm.
1: you're constantly increasing your repertoire of of skills rather than moving from one to the next to the next but that's that's how it works
0: yeah and so you know for a school starting out with. Walkthroughs. Where would you recommend they kind of start? You know, do you have like a a top five or a top ten that you'd like them to start with, or you recommend they start with? Well, Mm. it's important
1: to say this that we we try to avoid that because we try to say you should probably you you should you should have a discussion about what it is that you think is the most important challenge. Mm -hmm. Is there is there a common challenge in the school that you think is important to think about at the moment, and then choose the things which address the challenge but then at the same time the truth is you know when I go to schools some of the challenges that schools face are very similar and Mm. a very common one is running a room so that every child is able to participate without having to put their hands up and fight for attention and every required is not only allowed to participate is required to participate so how do we generate cultures where that's happening and i think a, a good starting point is to develop think pair share really good structured talk linked with cold calling where the students then have to be ready to answer so if you're doing those two techniques you, you you're making a lot of headway so a lot of people think oh god we do we do talk partners all the time but when you watch it you think well hmm. It's doing it really well. I mean, the difference between sort of mediocre pair talk and really strong pair talk, I think there's quite a big difference. And it's getting every teacher in a school to be really confident with getting students discussing sharply described questions so that they're really framing their thinking around the question, not just saying to a class, "Okay, guys, have a chat about blah, blah, blah. You, you say to you know some 13 year olds, have a chat about X. Some of them have no idea what, what to do. But if you say, I want you to put these three ideas in order of importance, and then they have to actually think about something really precise and mm-hmm. then report back what their decision was. Then you've got structured talk and everyone's ready to answer. And you've got everybody thinking, everybody rehearsing the language, So those those are very often the things I recommend because they're almost universal as things that teachers can work on. Beyond that, of course, there's lots of different pathways that you can go down and subtle variations around that. So that's, if people really, I mean, it does does happen all the time. People say to me, well, you know, what would you suggest? And that is what I suggest. But I, I always start with saying, Remember, we have to solve the problems that are there. So, only don't mm-hmm. in, don't do techniques unless you feel like it's addressing an issue you've aden- identified. So that that that's the way I would I would go. And then this is the key thing: don't just introduce it on a training day and go, blah blah blah, off you go. What's your mm-hmm. process? So, a lot of our work in with schools is des- helping them to design systems of, of professional development that run throughout the year and from year to year so that your a training event has a as a time loop that follows and using structures like so what one of the great bits of work one of my favorite things i've ever done was coming to australia last um november and working with simon breakspear and we did these training days uh and that where i want to met you in sydney we did one in melbourne and in brisbane and talking to we i think we had 300 people across 600 people (laughs) across across the three events, which is amazing. And the the agenda there was how do you develop a programme for professional development? And walkthroughs was one of the things we talked about, but also Simon's teaching sprints idea, where you've got this structure, this really great structure of a sprint, which is a, a team of teachers selecting an issue, selecting a problem, thinking of the solution, and then acting on it with some intensity over two to four weeks. And then reflecting on it, how it's gone. It's like that structure of the two to four week cycle, and it's a really great model for training. The walkthrough content is then what they're talking about in the, in that session. So those, we we found that our two ideas sort of nicely inter- interrelated. So that's the, that's a big discussion in the school. When ask a teacher, when's your next training session, or when's your next meeting about teaching and learning, and if they sometimes teachers say oh we hardly have any meetings I'm like we only meet once a term and you think god really do you really And then that's how they feel they feel like sometimes it's much better sometimes schools have engineered weekly training like weekly cpl you know amazing mm. uh, it says there's a huge variety of approaches that schools have have ad- adapted and exploring that with people is a
0: core part of what i'm working on at the moment yeah you know um one of the things that I connected with, with Simon on as well was uh, the, the teaching sprints process. And, you know, I was using it at, at my own school that I was at. And, uh, you know, then I was kind of discussing, you know, what I was finding with it. And um, I also run this, uh, I'm part of the Committee for Think Forward Educators, which is a, an organization um, that we have mainly in Australia, but it's starting to spread out worldwide now as well. And we have this mentor program. Um, and I, I decided to to trial it out with this mentor program. So in the program, we have uh, teachers who connect with other teachers at other schools because they um, the mentees can't find that support within their own school. And yeah, we we're struggling to have any structure to what we were doing. And so I thought, look, let's let's go with the teaching sprints process. And so I reached out to Simon and said, you know, what do you think? Do you want to collaborate on this project? And uh, yeah, he was as he always is, is really generous with his time and, and happy to kind of, um, you know, collaborate uh, with us. And, yeah, he, he got involved and, and I kind of stayed in touch with him since then. And, yeah, I agree with you. you know, one of the things that's really great about teaching sprints is just the simplicity of it um, but how the steps make sure that you follow through um, after you've done the PL or the CPD and it's not just that one-off. Um, like you said, you know the the drive-by sort of um, professional learning that we can sometimes see, and uh, without that follow-through and accountability, um, you know we don't get to pick up on on the errors that teachers can make, or uh, you know just kind of check in to see how teachers are going. You know, one of the things that we know about um, following up is it it just it kind of makes teachers ensure that they do it you know without that follow-up process they're off they can sometimes feel off the hook and and you know through no reason other than they might feel time poor or they might not have fully understood mm. um you know what that actual technique was but yeah having that check-in I find is really important and, and the review at the end as well so yeah it's been really cool seeing how um you're connected with Simon um and and the teaching spins process um fitting sometimes in it's, it's amazing
1: how um... I don't know it's, it's a bit it's a bit like i mean i can remember this when up when i was um learning the bill rogers stuff so you know it's, it's actually quite an, an an intentional act so in, in a lesson when when previously i'd have been saying guys will you stop talking you know and nagging and just to, to, to learn to say guys can i have you looking and listening thanks To turn it to flip the to be a positive framing now that the one i i was hearing him describe this and thinking I've got to actually have to do that so I can't just that doesn't happen by accident I have to go into mm. my next lesson and say oh, let me try this out um can I have all you looking and listening thanks and it sounds really weird because like I never say this but, like, here's me doing the positive framing, and you know and you and you have a go at it and then you think okay well, that's that seemed to be work that seems And I'll try it again and you over a bit of time it becomes your habit or uh, a teacher who who asks questions and says uh, who can tell me Okay, guys, so who can tell me what do you who who can tell me, you know, six times eight and a child puts their hand up, you know, rather than saying, right, everyone, let's all be thinking. Everyone remember. Whiteboards ready. Six, eights. Everyone, you know, it's like it's a a totally different thing and you have to decide to do it. Mm. So when teachers are busy and in, in the groove, they don't make those decisions to change because. You have to So you have to create a structure which punctuates, which punch, punch, punches through that inertia and says, let's really do this. Let's make sure we understand what we're going to do and actively do it and then get into that habit-changing groove. And, then, and that doesn't happen unless you feel like motivated to do it. There's a bit of collegiate support. We're all doing it together, that it kind of counts, but also that you understand the reason. We're not doing this because we've been told or because it's a groovy thing. It's because it's going to help more children learn more. And all of those things need to be like there to push you through, and then mm. to have that motivation to turn up to your next meeting and saying, Right, yeah, this is I've been doing it like you've all been doing it, and this is the experience of doing that technique. And ideally, with some reality check process that someone else has seen it at some point, or I've what videoed myself, or some external eyes has sort of fed into that. Yeah, so I mean, I, I deal with older schools where you hear them describe their system, and I just think sounds a bit wooly to me <laughs> I'll say yeah so we had a really good chat about the walkthroughs or the techniques and it was really cool and what I've just asked people to do is just go off and reflect and you know, see how they go and you know in a, in a few weeks time we'll, we'll get back together and we'll, we'll, we'll check in I just think that all sounds so loose you know like mm. have a chat see if you can do it you know and I, I just think you've got to some teachers will do that and, and fine and that they'll feel nice about it, but others just won't. That won't be enough. You have to say, you have to sign up to some sort of structured frequency of reflection. And even in the most sort of personal coaching scenario, you don't just leave your coaching session saying, well, that was a good chat. Hopefully, hopefully that'll be you used to, might be, might not be, you say, when are we going to meet again? Mm. And let's see this through. And you commit to the action. You make the you commit, and that commitment to the change has to be engineered. You can't just hope that people are going to make that commitment. So yeah. I, I find the whole psychology of this stuff so interesting. There's this sort of system was, level, yeah. But then there's the interpersonal, and even some teachers. <laughs> I started to go. I mean, this is a funny thing, but it's it's a a, a, a recent example, like very recent. It was yeah. doing a training day with a school and i've been back to that school since and there was this one guy sitting in the training nearly all day he had his he had his head head in his hands he was like he yeah. was like he was so resistant to being trained by me that he just literally had his head in his hands and he kept on going oh yeah oh. <laughs> he's actually swearing under his breath i could hear it because everything he just had a contempt for the whole process of someone explaining teaching to him. Mm. He, t- he didn't turn out to be the greatest teacher I've ever seen. Have to say. <laughs> so it was like, and everyone around him, his colleagues. I mean, his 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 team leader was saying, "It's not like he doesn't have stuff to learn. He does it." But I was thinking, so here's a guy. He's in that school, not me. How do I get him on board? You know, I'd need to get. I I need to work really hard to get alongside him and make him feel good about himself and that to trust. Yeah me to but in a one-off training session it's it's never going to happen you need to form all, all kinds of get all all sorts of relationships going with someone like that who's feeling resistant to that extent yeah probably because he's had terrible cpd for for years and and has just learned that it's just like the last thing he ever wants to do is suffer another fool telling him how to do his job you know
0: yeah you know and you and you can't you can't blame people like that for feeling that way you know that change fatigue and but one of the one of the things that i um you know I've got a sporting background and, and I kind of started my career as a personal trainer, but almost straight away, I went into doing group training because I understood how you know the social norms aspect of of getting the whole group on board with what you're doing, and so then that kind of lessens uh, the, the impact that you have to have as a trainer, whereas with that one-on-one, like you're saying there, you know, you've got to work so hard to build that relationship and most of the time the reason why these people um, are paying, you know, up to $100 an hour for, for someone to tell them what to do um, was because they're not motivated and so it's really yeah. draining talking to someone like that and the same, it, you know, transfers over to teaching when you're doing that one-on-one coaching uh, you've got to put so much time effort and energy into like you said building that relationship so that they they can trust you they feel psychologically safe in that situation whereas if you if you're kind of using more of that that teaching sprints model where we're working in those small groups um, you know and every and the energy that you get from it it's um you know mm. contagious
1: yeah yeah I, I totally agree I, and I feel like collaborative approaches are really useful they have some pitfalls though you need I, I feel you need somebody you need a and I, I think it's safer for it to be a kind of a nominated person mm. uh, and like an appointed person who has the skills, the knowledge, the confidence to challenge and say things like, so where, where are we finding hard? Where are the problems? What I'm thinking is this is a challenge, isn't it? And then to sort mm. of turn the challenge into a solution. So let's all try this. In its worst sort of iterate, you know, sort of a kind of manifestation, you get everyone's around the table just saying, oh, it's great, yeah, you're great, yeah, you're great, no, you're great, and we're all just sort of back-slapping and saying, really not changing very much, and Mm. that can happen, you know, I've seen that happen fairly easily, sort of, the culture in the small group can be missing the challenge, because people feel that that's kind of weirdly inappropriate somehow, like we don't, uh, we'd like to just be nice to each other and supportive, and they think they're being supportive, which, which they are, but they're not, therefore able to improve to the extent which you could if someone was there saying okay yeah we're all we're, we're all effective we're all effective mm. here we're not none of us are saying we're not effective but how do we be even more effective let's push each other to be a let's be demanding of each other and that, that's that's not always easy to engineer in a, a large group of teachers um no. having somebody whose role it is to do that to ask the probing questions and so on i feel like sometimes needs to be thought
0: about and those people then need training in doing that yeah, it's a that's really a good point. I, I think, you know, as teachers, we tend to almost pay each other too much respect. And so we we want to avoid that awkwardness of telling another adult what to do. You know, we're more than happy to tell children what to do. Uh, but when it comes to our peers, we, we tend to avoid that awkwardness of, of keeping them accountable and following up with things and, and going deep.
1: Yeah, I think there's a way of doing it. There's something I'm thinking of like, physics departments i've been in over the years where mm. this is the thing i mean i think I, i've learned a lot about this you can't change people that much you know you can't you know you've got a character you've got a teacher who's a certain character of a certain manner with themselves and, and communicating and, and we all have our own
0: mm.
1: that's very fundamental to who we are and the way the things we would like to do and the things we're comfortable doing and i think you need to be really clear that you're working with those people uh, and, and any one person needs to understand themselves and think like, what can I do to be more effective? So it's important to kind of recognize people's idiosyncrasies and preferences and biases and stuff and then support a change process, which shows, you know, what what could we do to be more effective so that their people are coming to that from their own perspective. So you need a good understanding of that and so this is why I, I like the probing question which is something like where do we find things difficult rather than what are we doing wrong? Mm. So we, yeah, we, I, I find it difficult when this happens. I find it difficult when this happens. I find it difficult when that you know sometimes I do this and I know I shouldn't have because I do that. and so right, so what's the solution to that? So you've identified the problem through that sense of it being hard rather than failing. Do you know what I mean? I feel like uh, I do think there's a lot, lot in this, and you know that's the kind of that's the kind of groove I'm in at the moment is exploring that with people.
0: And yeah, you not know, not be
1: judgmental.
0: Yeah, I've also found it really interesting, and um, I've, I've you know done a lot of reading about how, how to change people, and uh, you know how to minds change, and um, a couple of books I found really interesting: uh, Adam Grant's Think Again and How Minds Change uh, by David McRaney and they just kind of, uh, David McRaney's book also touches on motivational interviewing, which is, um, it was originally put together to help uh, drug addicts, and they have this process where they follow, um, it's ors it's, uh, I think it's um, open-ended questions, so like what you're doing there, you know, asking those open-ended questions first, um, and it's all about like, finding out information, you know, so finding out why they feel so strongly this way, why they don't want to change um, and getting that information. But then so the A is for affirming. So then you're saying something like um, something positive that they're doing. Um, R is, I can't remember what the R is, but basically the gist of it is at the end, then you're kind of repeating back to them what they've just said and then framing what, what they might be able to do next. So, so we kind of, Um, You know, giving these different options, which you might be able to do with, you know, something like teaching walkthroughs as well. Um, But, yeah, I've just found it really interesting because, you know, a lot of the times we come in as school leaders and we we kind of want to just tell people what to do. uh, Whereas we need to find out where people are at and what they think currently before we can make any sort of shift at all. How have you found that whole process? Well,
1: exactly. I mean, I've encountered every possible you know placed on the spectrum from someone who's like are uh, you know ultra defensive and you know for, for for good or bad reason but is is not open to feedback or to people who are sort of almost like <laughs> crushing themselves with their own critique you have to sort of lift them up and say no you're actually really great you know this is that you know and so you've got all that stuff in between and I think I'd love to go back to a few people that I've worked with over the years and, and have better conversations with them and, and stop trying to sell them my f- feedback. I mean, I, I was sort of inducted into a whole leadership culture, which was terrible in terms of judgment. And the, you were supposed to, I used to sort of th- feel weird doing it, going to a lesson and you're supposed to be deciding if the lesson was a good lesson or an outstanding lesson. I think, I don't know, like, how does anyone tell? And I used to feel like, like that, but you still have to do it. And then you'd write up a two-page report on the pro forma, pro forma and email it to them or, 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 you know, and I think, well, this is so odd, isn't it, like to tell the teacher what you were thinking what they could have done better without even talking to them. Mm. So I've been through that culture now. To me, that just seems so absolutely ridiculous. I wouldn't dream of it. I wouldn't dream of discussing a lesson with a teacher unless they were there and I was hearing what they were saying. So, and also... If, I was going to see them again afterwards because I feel like one-off feedbacks are problematic as well so I, there's lots of things now I've learned which I feel like unless those things are in place I wouldn't do it I wouldn't observe a lesson and give feedback to someone unless there was some follow up unless they were there to be to discuss it with them and all that and so that you can hear from them what they were doing and what they were thinking and get their sense of what they think they can do in their own practice to address the issues we're discussing Mm. Rather than do what I say, and you know, if I still come across school leadership cultures where the leadership team around the table really do believe in their own superior kind of knowledge that they are trying mm. to get their their lowly ineffective teachers to respond to, and you think this is not healthy, you, you're not the one in the lessons; <laughs> they are they're the people whose voice matters because they're the ones who are going to be there. So you've got to, they've got to be ex- explicitly part of this conversation. Of course they have. Hmm. And, and judging them and thinking, John, John's a crap teacher, isn't he? Kind of thing. It's like, that doesn't help him, does it? Like, he's got a job, he's there, he's trying to, he's, you need to get him to work to be more effective, of course, but he's not going to become more effective unless he feels that he's the engine of his own improvement. And that's the, that's the deal. So I think our whole system culture is around this and formal observations, and that's a still a long way to go to totally transform it. But I feel like we're on the right – we're going in the right direction.
0: Yeah, you know, you know what you're touching on there just highlights the importance of um, Vivian Robinson's work, you know, and and not bypassing, um, you know, people when we're, we're trying to make these decisions. Um, but, look, Tom, I'm really mindful of time. I know you've got a, a big football game to watch um, today. So <laughs> I <laughs> – I um I just wanted to ask you one more question, you know, like, so this is called the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. And so what other bits of knowledge do you feel more teachers need to have? And, you know, whether it's something that frequently comes up um, or common misconceptions or even just something that's like been a big, uh, had a big impact on your own development.
1: Well, I, I I think that a good understanding of how students learn and a really, you know, a really thorough grounding in that I think is really helpful. And the more teachers understand cognitive science in the sense of thinking about things like encoding knowledge, retrieval, and thinking and, and the, why it's so important to, for everyone to be involved in thinking. That that to me is one of the most fundamental sorts of stuff. And so a resource for that, I mean there's so many I could turn around and pick up loads, but mm. it's amazing to me how often I go to a training session and I say this yeah. book here. Why do students like school? Yeah, um, how many people have read it? And the truth is that most of the time, most people haven't read it. And you think, okay, so that's just it's only one book. But so I say, okay, so what else have you read about cognitive science? And often the answer is nothing. So you think, okay, well, get get into the books about how we learn. Um, and there, there there are lots of other. This is a really good one. If you, want, you know, different. This is this is by. Yana Weinstein, Megan Sumeraki, and illustrated by Oliver Kigali, Understanding How We Learn. It's, the, it's these sorts of books, which I feel like help teachers really understand the challenge that they're dealing with. And when you're facing with a room full of children that you can't see into their heads, what's happening in there. So that's that's the first thing. And then I, I suppose the other, the other major aspect of knowledge is the importance of adaptive teaching, responsive teaching. And, and, and everything that dylan williams says really about that mm-hmm. but the need to respond to the the information you gain from short cycle formative assessment what is it what am i finding out from the students about what they've learned and understood should inform a decision to reteach things they haven't understood not just grind, not just grind on regardless and that is mm-hmm. a big factor. a lot of people they feel like they're under so much pressure to cover the curriculum they think oh i haven't got yeah. time so they knowingly move on knowing some of the children don't don't get it yet and it's that type of thing so that really committing to responsive teaching and, and being ready to go back as well as forward minute by minute kind of thing i, I think those two ideas so that's the main thing I think the teachers need to focus very hard on is techniques which generate information from students. And then so that we can respond, but also being really mindful when you're facing a classroom is everybody thinking is everyone mm. able to check their knowledge and, and, and review it is everyone able to practice. And if they aren't if, if the answer isn't everyone it's just some it's not it's it's, it's not enough. Anyway, so I, you know, those are the, those are the main things I would say.
0: Yeah, a couple of great points there. So, just lastly, um, people that want to find out more about teaching walkthroughs in particular, uh, where where should they head?
1: Well, they go to the website walkthroughs.co.uk and walkthroughs spelt with the, the great American T R H <laughs> T H R U S walkthroughs.co.uk or you know on my blog teacherhead um dot com which is, where I, I reference it a lot there as well they'll, they'll they can find out more there so or they can follow us you know on twitter so we, we, one of those avenues i would say
0: yeah and i'll put all of those links in the show notes uh but tom it's been wonderful chatting you today and uh I, I feel like i could ask you so many questions and, and we could talk all day about these things but um yeah it's been really valuable and and i hope more schools and teachers jump on to everything that you're producing. So thank you for today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a real, real pleasure.
0: I've heard and read so much from Tom, but he was still able to provide so many gold nuggets throughout our chat. If you're in Australia and you want to find out more about how your school can use walkthroughs, Tom is delivering a webinar with Simon Brakesby on Thursday the 30th of March and I'll provide the details in the show notes. These are my key takeaways from today's episode. Tom highlighted the importance of having really precise, defined techniques, how we need to ensure that we provide specific examples when providing professional learning, why every child should be able to participate without having to put their hands up and fight for attention, and and that they shouldn't only be allowed to participate, but required to, the importance of developing think-pair-share and cold calling, how learning intentions have morphed into an ineffective activity, and why we need to commit to responsive teaching and be ready to go back and reteach if needed. So, if I don't release another episode, it's probably because I've peaked way too early. The last two episodes have featured a couple of edu-legends in Daisy Christulu and Tom Sherrington. However, in all seriousness, as great as it's been chatting to them, I feel the school leaders and teachers that I've already spoken to and those who will be guests in upcoming podcasts have just as much if not more, practical advice. So help me spread the word in getting the Knowledge for Teachers podcast out there. And as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.